This is going to be a uh, brief response to this new track it just came out at this point 42 minutes ago from James Lyman Ministries. I'm not very familiar with the actual ministry. Not terribly big. It looks like a, a gentleman in his office kind of doing the thing that I do, which is reaching out to people and uh, trying to teach them uh, the truth. And I want to first off thank Mr. James Lyman. Um both for caring enough to reach out to people about what he believes uh, them to be in error about. Obviously, I'm going to uh, seek to challenge his challenging of the Catholic faith. Um, I'm going to do it with scripture and with history. Um, but I love the fact that he cares enough to actually do this. That is uh, absolutely wonderful. And I wish that more people, uh, more Catholics, you know, would get out there and do this. In fact, that's why I shoot these videos for people is I want to be able to, uh, you know, make a difference in someone's life and, and see if I can't, you know, uh, correct some errors and lead people closer to Christ as well. So the uh, picture here we have, of course, a priest at the moment of consecration in the mass um, when the bread and wine, not juice, uh, become the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ, as the church has taught for basically 2000 years, a little less than that, you know, since 19 since since 33 ish A.D., uh, you know, we're in 2019 now, so we're, we're getting close to the 2000 year mark. Uh, and according to this, it says, according to first Corinthians 11, the Lord's supper is just a remembrance time for believers in Christ and the bread and juice. I don't know why it says juice here because it's clearly supposed to be wine are symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. This is clear in John six, as Jesus did not offer his arm to eat. The Catholic church teaches that the wafer and juice magically turn into Christ's body and blood and that those that partake in this are actually eating Christ. This is unscriptural and it's cannibalism. The RCC, the Roman Catholic Church, also teaches that God's grace is given through participation in the Mass and the other sacraments, and that without their taking part, grace is not received and one is not saved. Uh, the Bible teaches that a person is saved apart from works and that grace is received by faith alone, not works or sacraments or the Mass. And he gives some citations for some of these points, and of course he leads you back to his website. So again, uh, first off, uh, James, thank you very much for sharing this. Um, in I, I'm, I'm assuming assuming good faith, you know, seeking to do your best uh, to spread the, the gospel and spread the truth. I appreciate that. Again, I think you're mistaken. Um, so let's, let's kind of dive into that, right? So first off, you cite 1 Corinthians 11. I think that's really, really interesting. Um, I'm going to actually come over here to 1 Corinthians 11. This is the NIV version. You can use whatever version you want. I'm actually going to jump down to the RSV just because it's a more literal um, version. So we'll let that move along here. And so here we see Paul talking about abuses in the Lord's Supper. Um, the following, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I partly believe it, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This is an interesting passage just right there, even before we get to the part that you're talking about, because it talks about factions in the church. And the thing about factions, the thing about um, heresies is heresies always point towards the truth because they're always opposed from the truth. And in fact, in fact, um, there was, I was just reading today, it was a, an ancient sermon by, I think it was Hilary of Portuez, I can't pronounce the name, <laughs> but basically that was the point that he had made as well, uh, was that all of the different heretics that were out there, they proved the, the truth of the church um, by all being you know opposed to each other and opposed to the church. And of course, now we see that today uh, in Christianity. There's so many different factions. I've heard it estimated as high as 33,000. I don't think that's right. Um, Sorry, um, 
I've heard it as high as 33,000. I think that's off. But even if it's off by an order of 10 and it's 3,000 denominations or off by uh, an order of 100 and it's, it's you know, 300 denominations, um, that's still a lot of different competing voices saying, here's the truth about Jesus. No, here's the truth about Jesus. And Jesus says, I've come to give you the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth does not contradict the truth. Uh, so the fact that it took 1500 years for all of a sudden this explosion in different denominations to happen uh, should point us towards the fact that uh, these are the kinds of factions that Paul's talking about. But let's continue. When you meet together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal and one is hungry, another is drunk. Um, what? You do not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So he's basically saying some people are coming very poorly to Mass, coming poorly to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which was an institution all of the early Christians uh, believed. So what do we read about this, right? Um, Here we go from St. Paul right here. Um, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course, this is, uh, first off, this is Jesus. Um, I guess I can't highlight it. Oh, there we go. Um, celebrating the Passover. And the Passover was a commemorative celebration that the Jewish people were to establish uh, or celebrate as a perpetual institution. In fact, when Jews celebrated the Passover, they didn't say when, when God brought us out of Egypt years ago, but they say when God brought me out of Egypt. The entire framing of the Passover is a perpetual remaking present of the historical fact of God bringing his people out of deliverance out of, out of, out of Egypt. Right. Um, so they say when God brought me out of, so it literally the idea of the Passover is making the thing that is in the past present uh, and eternally present. And that's of course what Jesus is doing. He's fulfilling all of that by making the sacrifice of his body uh, on, on the cross present uh, perpetually all throughout uh, human history. That's literally what's going on here. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, it's not just like, hey, think about me when you do this, right? And then he says this in the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. This is the only time that Jesus ever mentions the blood of the new covenant or even really the new covenant, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, you had a series of covenants that grew progressively larger in scope. Um, there was kind of an implicit covenant between God and Adam and Eve, but a very explicit covenant between Noah and his wife and his children and their wives and God. So you had a family. And then with Abraham, he says repeatedly, he's establishing a covenant with him uh, and, and his tribe. And then he establishes a covenant very clearly with Moses and the nation of Israel. And then, of course, with David and the kingdom of Israel. So each one is getting progressively larger and larger in scope. And of course, the new and everlasting covenant is going to be universal. It's going to be for all people. Uh, and of course, the Greek term that the early Christians applied to themselves for universal is katalikos or Catholic. That's why the early church called itself Catholic. And this is the only time Jesus mentions the covenant in his blood. And he doesn't say this is, you know, like my blood. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink, do this in remembrance of me. Um, For as often as you drink, eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, says Paul, uh, as kind of an after effect here, right? Now, Paul may be speaking a little rough and a little loose here because, you know, he's not necessarily thinking he has to make a distinction people are going to understand. But Paul then clarifies who 
whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So not only is it a sin, uh, but literally it is it is the same as murder, right? To, to uh, be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord and eating and drinking judgment upon himself if he fails to discern the body. So this very passage that you just quoted uh, from 1 Corinthians 11, in fact, says almost the opposite of what your uh, little mean here, uh, your little tract is is trying to say. Now you cite um, John chapter six, so let's go jump over there really quickly as well. And John six is what often has the bread of life discourse, and it's interesting because it comes after the feeding of five thousand, where people are fed with bread, and then people are following him around, and they they want to see him. And Jesus, is like you, you're following me around, you know, because you you ate the bread and, and you were, you were filled, you know, ask for the bread that that truly satisfies. Right. So when they found him on the other side, see, they said, Rabbi, when'd you come here? Um, let me find the right part here. Okay. Uh, so Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, uh, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Uh, he who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and have not yet and, and do not yet believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will that he sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the Jews murmured because he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. They're understanding him figuratively here. They said, is this not Jesus, the, the son of Joseph, uh, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be taught by God. And everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except him uh, who is from God, he has seen the Father. But truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now that seems uh, positive, you know, with what you said there, but he's going to continue. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give it for the life of the world is my flesh. And here they understand him literally. The Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me because I live in the father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This is what he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, many of his disciples who heard this said, this is a hard saying. What's the hard saying? Eat my flesh. But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples murmured at it, he said to them, do you take offense at this? 
then what if you receive the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe, for Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went away. I always find this really interesting. Because this is John chapter 6, and this is verse 66. I mean, this is just coincidence, really. But go figure that it's 666, John 666, where people leave, and they leave him over this understanding of the Eucharist. In fact, when he says, um, let me pull this up on uh, the concordance. Hang on. So here in John, this is just one example, in John 6, uh, 56, uh, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And the word here is trogon, trogol. Um, and the phrase uh, trogo literally means to chew, to gnaw, uh, to masticate, to crunch. Uh, literally, it means the, the grinding with the teeth. That's what it means. Uh, so Jesus is being very, very clear here that he's being literal. He is escalating this thing. And what's really interesting is if you jump back to the very beginning, this is, um, let me find it really quickly here, uh, around 37 or so. Um, hang on. So at one point here, uh, Jesus says, everything that the Father gives me will come to me. Everyone everyone the Father gives me will come to me. I will not reject anyone who comes to me. He's, he's basically saying, I'm not going to drive away people that the Father has called to me. Uh, and yet, literally, that's what happens in this passage is people are getting driven away. And so they're being driven away over this literal understanding of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They're having a hard time understanding uh, how he can mean the things uh, that he's meaning. Now, there are other times when Jesus uses a parable uh, about um, bread and, and, and he talks about, uh, he talks to the, the apostles and he says, be on guard against the, the leaven of the Pharisees. And the, 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 uh, the apostles actually understand him literally. Let me find that passage. So here back in Matthew 16, Jesus says, um, be on your guard against the yeast of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they discussed among themselves saying, is it because we didn't bring any bread? Jesus is aware of the discussion. He says, oh, you of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? They're understanding him literally. Do you not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many basketfuls that you gather or the seven loaves and the 4,000? How many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? So he clarifies when he's not being literal uh, about bread to, to make sure that people understand him. But that's not what we see. Now, here's, an, here's, here's something that I think that you kind of hit at here, James, um, in this, uh, when you says, you know, Jesus did not offer his arm to eat. Well, he offered his body and he offered his blood, right? And some people will say this. Well, Jesus said lots of things. You know, I am the bread of life. But he also says, I'm the gate. Uh, I'm the vine. So why don't we have sacred gates and sacred vines and things like that, or sacred doors? Uh, and the thing is, Jesus said those things figuratively because he says you know i am the gate i am the vine i am you know the 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 the, the true the true branches are grafted on you whatever um but he never says this gate is me he never says this vine is me but he does say this is my body this is my blood after foreshadowing exactly what he was going to be doing in, in John chapter six. So the, the Jews leave him precisely because they understand him being figurative and they can't hear that 
And so they back away. Now, there's lots of other places we could look at uh, to kind of talk about uh, where we find the uh, the Eucharist in Scripture. And in fact, just before uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, you know, Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So he's very, very clear. In fact, uh, contrary to what you've got here, uh, that it is not just a symbol. Uh, there is nothing in scripture that leads us to believe uh, that it's just a symbol, right? Um and this can you can go all the way back. There's a there's a proscription in Leviticus against drinking uh, blood, right? And there's there's lots of reasons for why that would be there. Uh, it was a pagan practice. It was part of ritual trying to gain the power of an animal or whatnot. But the prescription in Leviticus actually says, uh, "Don't drink the blood of an animal, for the blood of the animal has the life of the animal in it." Right? Which actually points towards these these pagan understandings. And so the, one of the prescriptions against blood is because we shouldn't drink the blood of something we don't want the life of it in us. Well, what's the one thing we would want the life of in us? God. God incarnate. God in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, who is God. The Alpha and the Omega, the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. You know, whose life do we want in us but Jesus's, right? There's also places you can find in the Old Testament uh, where people talk, that was a uh, Leviticus 17, 10 ish for the record. Um, you know, where people will talk about, you know, eating and, 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 and drinking the, the, or eating the blood or eating the, eating the flesh of somebody. And every time that's ever used, it's used in a disparaging way. Um, to, to eat the flesh of somebody symbolically literally means to disparage them. Right. Uh, let me figure out where that passage is. Hang on. So in uh, Psalm 27, two, and also Micah three, Verses one and four, uh, the Bible uses the term uh, for for you know eating the flesh of, of uh, somebody in a in a in a figurative sense, and it means to disparage against them, to hate them, to revile them. So literally, if Jesus is being figurative here, what he's doing is he'd, he'd be drawing an illusion that basically says, um, if you want to follow him, you need to hate him <laughs> and disparage him and revile him. And uh, I don't think that's quite the uh, the message that Jesus was was getting at, right? And so we understand all of this and we simply say, well, Jesus, we take him at his word, right? And and people will say, well, it just looks like bread and it just tastes like wine, right? So, uh, and I still don't know why you have juice here because very clearly, uh, you know, Jesus drank wine. Um, it was part of all the celebrations. Wine was a, it was a necessity in those days, in fact, because water wasn't safe. You needed the alcohol to kill the bacteria. And Jesus' very first miracle, uh, just to put this out there, was creating wine for people who had already been drinking for multiple days. So I'm getting this weird light on my face here. Uh, but it was creating, it was creating probably the best wine the world has ever tasted for people at a wedding feast who'd already been drinking for multiple days. Um, so as to help them save face and not run out of, you know, the, the festivities, you know, Mary comes to him and says they're, they're out of wine and, and, uh, and Jesus says, woman, what is this between you and me? My time has not come. Mary knows what he's destined for. Like a good Jewish mother doesn't even respond. She just turns to the stewards and says, do whatever my son tells you to do, which is, of course, the message Mary always has is do whatever my son tells you. And like an obedient Jewish son, Jesus does his first miracle starting his ministry right there. And he makes wine. And when it's brought to the wine steward uh, or the head steward, he tastes the wine. And it was in these ceremonial washing jars. So imagine most people were probably kind of laughing at what they thought was going to happen. This is, you know, not the cleanest water they're going to be, be drinking. And he tastes it and he says, you know, most people serve the best wine first. Uh, and then once people have had their fill, they switch to an inferior wine, but you've saved the best for last. And he's literally commenting on the, the alcoholic quality uh, of the wine, the potency of the wine. It's like, it's like a, 
maybe you don't experience this if you don't drink alcohol. Your tract leads me to believe that you don't. Um, but uh, an analogy would be, uh, you know, serving a, a nice fancy import beer when your friends come over first and then switching over to Bud Light or, or Natty Light or something like that. Once they've had a beer or two in them and, and they're not going to really notice the, the the difference, just as a fun way to make an analogy on that, right? Uh, but so very, very clearly, um, all of the scriptures, uh, and I can point to dozens, if not hundreds of other scriptures, but I'm actually going to turn to the early church and let's just take a look at what it is they had to say. I'll put a link to this down below this video so you can check all this out for yourself. Uh, but here is an epistle from Ignatius, who was the Bishop of Antioch. Uh, he was writing as he was on his way to be fed to the lions. Um, and he says this, he says of the heretics, they abstain from the Eucharist. This is in his epistle to the Smyrians. This is uh, chapter seven, verse one. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the father of his goodness raised up again. Um, Justin Martyr, writing a little bit later, maybe a generation later, says uh, in 100, this is still a persecuted church. It's still legal to be Christian. Not as common bread and common drink to receive these, but in like manner as Jesus, our Savior, having been made flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, we have been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his words and from which our blood and fresh is by transmutation nourished, meaning you eat it and it becomes part of you. It is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. And here's another point. Um, if you were to look at Jesus walking down the street, what you would see would not be God. In a sense, you would just see another man. That's why people were, you know, confused about who he was. Well, he says, isn't this the carpenter's son, right? The son of Mary. Don't we know this man? Why do you think he's God, right? There would be nothing in him that would look like he was God, right? But he was God. You, you would agree with that, I assume, right? And so, too, here in the Eucharist, it looks like bread. It looks like wine in the same way that Jesus looked like a human, but it is substantially different, just as he was substantially different. At the moment of the consecration, when the priest says the words of the Mass, which are the words of Jesus, transubstantiation happens. That's a big fancy word, but all it really means is what is there is substantially changed. It substantially becomes something very, very different. Um, a way to understand this for people who don't understand what transubstantiation is, is imagine that you have a dog. Uh, this is my dog. His name is Fido. Now, if I have a dog named Fido, I can do lots of things to change what Fido looks like without affecting him being a dog, right? I can shave his hair. I can chop off his legs. Um, I can bob his tail. I can paint him green. Um, you know, I can do all sorts of things that were hilarious or horrendous to this dog, but it would still be a dog, right? It would be substantially still a dog, just a green dog or a legless dog or earless dog or shaved dog or purple dog or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But... If instead I love my dog, I leave him alone, and uh, one night I go to sleep, and uh, Fido goes to sleep by the by the by the fireplace. And I wake up in the morning, I look down, and I see Fido sitting there, and I go about my day, and I come back later, and I see Fido still sitting there, and he hasn't moved, and I realize, oh, wait a minute, that's not Fido anymore. That's Fido's body, right? Um, but Fido has died. My, my dog died. And when that happens, what I actually have down there, it's very common to speak of as Fido's body, but really it's dog-shaped fertilizer. It is no longer Fido. It is substantially different because the the animus of that dog, the, the animating part of it, the soul of that dog, not an immortal soul, but it still has a soul, has departed. 
it no longer has a soul. And so that dog has been substantially changed, right? So transubstantiation is kind of similar. It doesn't need to make a physically visible alteration for an actual alteration to be there. Jesus doesn't physically need to look different in order to be God, nor does the Eucharist at the moment of consecration need to look different in order to be truly the body and blood of Jesus. You just have to believe Jesus when he tells you and believe Paul when he tells you that this is the body and blood of Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and end this video here. I definitely have a few more things I could say about this, but I think this video is long enough. Uh, let me know if you have any questions about this. Obviously, James, um, if you'd like to have a discussion about this, I'm open. That's why I took the time to shoot this video for you. Uh, anybody else who watches this video, I'll probably put it up on YouTube after a while. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. Feel free to comment down below. Um, if this is on a platform that you can like and subscribe, feel free to do that as well. And uh, I wish you the best. God bless you all. Bye-bye.